everybody. We are going to be continuing through the book of Romans, so get your Bibles out. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm excited for today's message of what God, of Paul is going to be writing to us. Uh, that's going to be page 940 on your house Bibles, page 940. Give you a second to turn there if you need it. Romans chapter 3. I love being a dad to little kids. I just love it. I love being a dad. I love the little fun stories that I get. And as a preacher, I have no shortage of fun moments to share with you to illustrate my points. Uh, some time ago, uh, I, I got a chance to put my little kids on trial. Uh, now, that, that might sound mean, but I promise you every parent does this. Uh, you put your kids on trial. And I'm a good attorney. I like to weigh the evidence for my children. So I go down to their room at nap time. My little twins are in nap time. And uh, I open the door. And immediately when I open the door... I see these two little twins, they're three years old, to give you a picture of this, and they just are like this, guilty, <laughs> right? That's their guilty look, eyes wide, not moving, they've been caught in the action, and they're guilty. And I look over on the wall, and along the whole long wall of their room, somebody has colored with a purple marker big squiggles and circles all down the wall. It's gone up, it's gone over where the bed is, so it like, it then traces up over the bed. I can see the whole wall covered in purple marker. So I say, did you girls draw on the wall? No, no. Try to hide it right away. All right, who drew on the wall? And my little Mira, she's, she's funny. Well, she, every time if you ask who did something, first thing she does is blame somebody else, anybody else, whoever the closest person can possibly be. So she goes, Joy did it. <laughs> little Joy's over here. And if you know Joy, she's kind of got a little bit of a big sister attitude about her when it comes to Mira. And Joy just looks at her with this like angry scowl on her face. And she goes, no, Mira did it. All right. Now here's the deal. I'm the dad. And I have a video monitor in their room. So I know exactly what happened. I was, I, that's the reason I opened their door in the first place. I saw something was going on down there that shouldn't be taking place. So I went down there. Anyways, but I'm not ready to bust that information out yet. I'd like to put my kids on trial for a little bit longer. So I say, well, kids, let's weigh the evidence. Evidence is stacked against you here. Uh, so first of all, first piece of evidence, the, the writing on the wall is all from three feet down and lower. Which means it wasn't me or my wife. It was one of the little people in our house. It was one of our kids who was taking that marker and drawing all over the wall. Secondly, second piece of evidence, it was the work, the artwork that was done was not good. It was just scribbles. It was circles. It was wiggly lines. Okay, second piece of evidence against us, against you girls. Someone in this room did it. Uh, it's three-year-old artwork. Okay. Now I got an ace up my sleeve here. I say, okay, girls, come show me your hands. Now, anyone who's got three-year-old kids knows what I'm looking for. Kids don't know how to color without covering their entire hand in the color that they were coloring with. So little Mira comes up and shows me her hands clean. I say, all right, Joy, your turn, sweetheart. Joy comes up. I don't know how kids do this. Her hand was literally purple, like, all the way down the arm. It was coming down all the way like this, smeared across her face was purple, Guilty, no running, caught in the act, she's guilty as guilty can be, she can't get out of it, she knows it, and now she knows that I know it, she's guilty. There's a doctrine at the center of the Christian faith, 
And uh, this is a, it's going to sound like a technical term, but honestly, as a Christian, you should know this term. It's very important for you to know this term. It's a historic term of the church. It's called total depravity. Total depravity. In our modern day, we like to change old-fashioned words. I like the old stuff. The new way to say this is radical corruption. I like total depravity because it's old and I'm an old soul. Here's what total depravity means, right? I'm going to give you R.C. Sproul, a great theologian's definition of this. Total depravity means this. The effects of the fall, the fall referring to Adam and Eve and their sinful fall away from God, extend or penetrate to the core of our being. That is, our sin is something that comes from our hearts. In biblical terms, that means it's from the, the core or very center of our existence. So, what is required for us to be conformed to the image of Christ is not simply some small adjustment or behavioral modification, but nothing less than renovation from the outside, from the inside, I'm sorry, from the inside, renovating our heart. Here's what total depravity means. It means that every one of us, when we stand before a holy God, will be found guilty because of what we have done. He had the monitor the whole time. There's no excuse. He's been watching. He sees, he knows the heart, and every person, no matter who you are, is found guilty before a holy God. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and today we come to Paul's kind of climactic ending to the first two and a half, uh, three and a half chapters of the book of Romans. Remember, he's writing to the church in Rome, and he's writing ahead of himself. He plans on going and visiting Rome sometime and seeing them and teaching them in person, but he wrote them this book in about the year A.D. 55 to go before him, to lay the ground so they get their theology in order and they start seeing the world in God's truth, not just out of kind of a mirage. So he's writing to encourage them and point them towards the Lord. And this scene today, out of the second half of Romans 3, comes in the form of a courtroom trial. It's a courtroom. Paul's going to bring all humanity on trial before God. He's going to bring our souls before a holy God, and he's going to say, how are you doing? And the scene comes with all the scenes that you would find in a courtroom. There's an arraignment where the charges are brought, and you're told what the issue is. Then the evidence is weighed, and then the verdict is given. So here's what I want to do today. I want to go through those three sections, and then I want to show you as best as I can why this is so important for your life. Let's start with the arraignment. Verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, the arraignment is where the charges are brought before humanity. We're standing on trial. What's the condition of our soul before a holy God? Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Here's the charge. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, or Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. Now that's the arraignment. So let's pause right there. Now let's get our bearings straight. Paul is a Jewish believer writing into a church of Jews and Gentiles. Jewish and Gentile believers. This is very important. They were a very multi-ethnic church, and I don't want us to miss that. Jews and Gentiles historically did not get along. There was a long tradition of Jews and Gentiles not getting along with each other. There was persecution there. There was racism there. There was all types of stuff in their history of how they didn't get along. And now they're in this church together, and they're trying to worship the Lord together, and Paul's trying to set the record straight. And one of the issues was that the Jews thought they had some kind of competitive advantage over the Gentiles because they had the Old Testament that was written to them. And so Paul equalizes the playing field. He says, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Doesn't matter what the background was. Doesn't matter who you thought you were before. 
doesn't matter how strong you think you are or how weak you think you are. When we stand before a holy God, each and every person in this church, we stand before a holy God as guilty. That's the charge. Jew and Gentile alike, Gentile alike standing before a holy God. And he says we are under sin. Very important language. Now, let's just work with the word sin first, and then we'll tackle the word under. The word sin, that word literally means to miss the mark. It's, it's the vision of a bullseye in the back of the room, and I shoot a, a bow and arrow and try to hit the mark, but I miss it. It's this idea that God's got an ethic whereby each and every person on the planet, no matter where you come from, no matter what religion you grow up in or what culture you're a part of, will be held accountable before God based on his ethic. He has written it. It is true. It does not change or vary from culture to culture, from religion to religion. God is true. His ethic is true. And we will be judged by his justice system, not the one we create, by God's justice system. Now, this is a very important side note. I hear this all the time. I want to tackle it right now. A lot of people think that Christianity is good for me. The ethic that God writes is good for me. But if someone else wants to live their life, however else they want to live their life, good for them. That's good. They can do whatever they want. I'll keep my thing quiet. They mind their own business. That is to misrepresent the God of the Bible, and it's to misrepresent the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God over all people everywhere. His justice system is the justice system that no matter what culture or religion you grew up in, you are going to be held accountable before that justice system. And as Christians, we believe that. It is good, true, right for all people everywhere. That's the ethic that we ought to be aiming for. The reality is, though, that we've missed the mark. Everybody. Not just someone out there. It's here in this room. He says we're under sin. It's interesting language. It means that sin has captivated us. It's dominated us. It's become the, the thing that literally holds us, covers us, and we're inescapable from its presence in our life. It has literally forced itself upon us, and every part of our being has been corrupted by the presence of sin in our lives. We're under sin's dominion. Now, I want you to sit in that for a moment. Today, as I preach this text, I want you to know, this is not an academic text. If you approach this academically and think I'm just storing up new information about God, you miss the second half of Romans 3. What you need to be doing as I go through this is doing what one preacher calls a personal inventory. You should be going through and allowing the words of Scripture to actually resonate and just be honest for one second in your life. Be honest about the truth of God's word speaking in your life. We're all under the power of sin. That's the charge. No human heart has escaped it. Men, the evidence is weighed. That's part two. The evidence is going to be weighed. Now, here's what he does here. Paul is about to go on like a preacher run. If you notice in your Bible, the next few verses are all indented. Maybe they're in italics. It's because it's written in a bit of a poetic fashion. Paul is mustering his inner Kanye in this moment. All right, let's take a side. I went there. Come on, Kanye. Can you believe that? Man, I've preached sermons against that guy before. 
I don't know about you. I know he's a new believer. He's got a lot of stuff he's working on. I don't expect him to have his theology in order. But I tell you what, every, every concert this guy does right now, he's preaching the gospel like it's a Billy Graham crusade. It's kind of amazing. We can pray for that guy and let's hope it's real and that it lasts. Not put our hope in him, but it's kind of fun to see. All right, back to the word of God. The album's pretty good too. Okay. <laughs> The evidence is weighed. Paul musters his inner Kanye. There's a bit of a, a hip-hop beat to this. That's how he writes it. He, he's coming at you, and he wants to weigh the evidence by pulling from all these Old Testament verses and putting a bit of poetry together as the evidence stacked against you. Let's read it together in one sitting. Then we're going to parse it out for us. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the evidence. That's the courtroom trial where it's weighed. Now what's going on there? First of all, let's notice one thing. He starts this way. Verse 10 begins... As it is written. Every line there, almost verbatim, is being pulled from many different texts in the Old Testament. This was a way of rabbinical teaching in the first century that's called a chiraz in Hebrew. That word literally means a string of pearls. So what they're doing is they're pulling pearls of wisdom from various writings, from various pieces of literature, and a rabbi would put them all together to make one kind of avalanche of information, right? And then he puts it together and he makes a string of pearls. I love what one preacher called this. This isn't a string of pearls. This is a string of nasty. This is a, a, a shiraz that reveals the depth of the depravity of your life and my life. And he works from the inside out. He, he, he starts with the heart and the motivations. Then he evaluates, interestingly, that his next move is your mouth, what you say. And then he goes to your hands and your feet. And he says, when you stand before a holy God, your whole being is totally depraved. You're guilty. Let's work through it. The first verse. None is righteous, no, not one. Starting with your inner core. No one understands. That's the mind. It's the inner working of the head. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. That's taken almost verbatim from Psalm 14, verse 1 through 3. He's talking about the human heart and the motivations that drive us to do the things we do. He's looking underneath the actions to why you are the way you are. What's happening here at this level of you? And he says there's a, there's a total brokenness that has corrupted your being before God. There's no nice guy. No, no, one, no one understands, he says. What that means is that, that no one understands God and, and his fullness and his goodness and his love and, and what he offers us and his picture for what humanity could be. No one gets it. We've all got just this little view of God and then we live our lives with little views of God. No one understands. No one seeks for God, he says. That language is really strong language. It's, it's seeking with this deep desire to actually obtain something. Think of someone who's training to climb Mount Everest and the hard work they put in to actually work their way up the tallest mountain in the world and get to the summit. No one seeks for God that way. 
We've all got ulterior motives. We've all got selfish gain in the, in the back of our mind. Everyone's been corrupted at the heart level. All have turned aside from the path that God's laid for humanity. Rather than a worthy life, we live worthless lives. Because only God can give us a worthy life. Imagine a, a tree, a healthy tree. He's getting to the root system. He says, look, the roots are poisoned. Your heart, as it stands before God, if you're wondering why you're weak, you don't have to wonder. The Bible's called it out already. You're totally depraved too. We're all in that boat together. If you're wondering why you don't overcome sin more powerfully, you're totally depraved too. He got your number. The Bible's not wrong. He says the root system's broken. No matter how many ornaments you have on your tree, even if, the, if there's some leaves still hanging on the branches and you think you're all that, the root system is poisoned and dead. There's no restoring it. And even if there's some fruit growing right now, it's just a matter of time before it shows. Our motivations are off. And then interestingly, he, he moves to the mouth. Isn't that an interesting next step? I wouldn't have gone there if I were Paul. But he, he immediately goes to the things we say. You know what you say is very powerful? Listen to what he says. He says, There's, their throat is an open grave. That's Psalm 5, verse 9. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's Psalm 40, verse 3. Their mouth is full of curses and bitternesses. That's Psalm 10, verse 7. There's an old saying that what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, he says the roots are wrong. And, and when you see what comes out of the mouth, it's just terrible. We use our words to hurt people and... He says it's like an open tomb. The problem with an open tomb is that an open tomb is a stench. To anybody who goes by, it just corrupts the air around them. And that's what we do with our mouth. We, we don't use it to honor God and to build people up, but we tear people down and we dishonor God with our mouth. And none of us are not guilty in this. There's an old saying, we all learned it when we were a kid. Finish it for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Who taught our kids that? That's not true. Words hurt. Words have power behind them. You can tear a person down like that with one sentence. You, you say the wrong thing to me in the wrong way. You got the wrong motivation. I'll tell you what, you can suck the courage out of me. As a man, you can just take the courage out of me like that. And I'm, I'm done. It, takes, it can take a long time to restore that courage in me. Men, you, you speak to a woman in a certain way. You say something in a way that, that attacks the heart of a woman. You can strip the self-dignity and self-worth out of a woman like that with your words. Our words are strong. And they're designed to honor the Lord, to proclaim his goodness, to speak truth and love into people. But as we stand before the high court of the land... We are guilty. Every one of us have used our words in the wrong way to tear people down and to hurt. Look at what Paul is doing. He, he's not appealing anywhere else. You notice that? He appeals to the word of God. If I were bringing my case against our guilt, I'd appeal to a whole bunch of places. I'd appeal to our actions. I see your Facebook posts. <laughs> I'd say, I saw what happened on Halloween. I saw what you were doing. I... I, I I, I saw you over here. I, I saw that over here. I saw that. You guys are all guilty. 
And then what you would do? You'd appeal to a higher court, wouldn't you? Yeah, but he's appealing to the highest court, God's word. Thus saith the Lord. There's nowhere else to go. He's not appealing to logic. He's not appealing to human reason. He's not appealing to human philosophy or anything else. He's appealing to the highest court in the land. There's no appellate court after this. God's word has spoken. This is the condition of your soul, whether you choose to agree to it or not. Guilty before a holy God. And then he moves to our actions. He's worked the heart, he's worked the mouth, and now he looks to our hands and our feet. And the evidence there is no better. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. That's Proverbs 1.16 and Isaiah 59 verses 7 to 8. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36 verse 1. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That means that that we cut people down. It's the image of someone who knows where they're getting, knows where they want to go, sees someone standing in their way, and just chops them down. Shed blood. Does that not describe our culture? I know where I want to get, and I... And I really don't care about where you want to get or what God's doing in your life or where my coworker wants to get or where my friends want to get. At the end of the day, the most important thing is the vision I've planned for my life. And so if it costs a little bit of harm to so-and-so along the way, we're quick to shed blood, says Scripture. And here's God up on the monitor the whole time, right? No one escapes this. He sees it all. We're all going to stand before a holy God and be judged underneath the same ethic. We're guilty. He says, our, in, the path, in our path are ruin and misery. That means that all around us, everyone is brought into a place of spiritual suffocation because of our life. Look, look make sure you, you get this. Don't, don't point the finger to somebody else right now. I'm asking you to weigh your own heart. In our path are ruin and misery. Sometimes we think of our sin before a holy God as just between us and God. It's like, okay, this is all that matters. And so if I choose to sin, I know there's grace, and that's true, there is grace. And and so it's it's all at the end of the day, it's just me and God. But actually, what this says is that in our path is ruin and misery. See, our sin, even the most private sin, corrupts other people around us. It's not about you. It was never about you. Your sin has a way bigger impact than just you. It impacts everybody around you. It breaks your neighbors. It it brings spiritual suffocation into your family. It it brings in demonic presence into those that you care about. Your your sin is far bigger than just you and God. In your path are ruin and misery, says says the text. We stand before a holy God and God finds us guilty. Now some of you are saying, now pastor, see, now this is why I don't like the Bible. This is, this is, This is why I don't like the Bible. See, I see a lot of good and love in the world. And I don't like this. I remember years ago, I was sharing the gospel with a Muslim friend of mine. I sat down and we were talking about Christianity, his view of what Christianity was. And I said, you know, you got the wrong view of Christianity. You think Christianity is Islam. You think Christianity is just, you know, here's how to be better and earn points with God. Christianity says you can't be better. Christianity says that we're guilty before a holy God and we need help from the outside. And he said, well, that's not good news. And at that point in the conversation, I said, you're right. (laughs) That's not good news. 
We stand guilty before a holy God. There is good news, but that is bad news. And some of you say, I just don't believe it. I don't think we're all that bad. I see a whole lot of love in the world. Thinking of the movie Love Actually, right? When I think of the world, people say it's all bad, but when I look out, I see a whole lot of love out there. What's that country singer's name? I screwed it up in the last sermon. Brian Luke, is that his name? Brian Luke? Luke Bryan? I did that last one. Okay, shows what I know. Luke Bryan, thank you. Luke Bryan's got a song out right now on the radio. It goes like this. It's his creed. Notice how it starts with I believe. You know how we sing I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, this is his belief statement, ready? Most, I believe most people are good. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe if you just go by the nightly news, your faith in all mankind would be the first thing you lose. I believe most people are good. And most of us would agree with that, I think. And the reason we agree with that is because we look out and we see people that aren't Christians, or we evaluate our own life and we say, on the whole, I feel like I'm not that bad. I read Romans 3, Rafe, but that sounds like it's describing somebody else. Now, here's what I want to say to that. Here's why we say this. If you are evaluating what is good and true and what makes a good and virtuous person on culture standards or on your own standard, then everyone's going to be good. Everyone in the culture makes the cultural standard. And so if culture sets the pace for what is good and true, then everybody that is part of that culture is good and true. Everyone's going to be just fine. And so then when culture says that everyone can do whatever they want, then whatever everyone's doing is good and everyone's good. But here's the problem. That doesn't work when you stand on your judgment day before a holy God who's proclaimed his kingdom ethic and how we ought to live. You can bring whatever you thought was true into that courtroom, and it does not matter because the highest court of the land has already found you guilty by a higher law. God's word establishes what is true. And if we evaluate goodness on what we think ought to be good, then we miss what scripture says, and we miss what God has communicated. Now he brings the final punch, the verdict. There's the evidence. Thus saith the Lord. What's the verdict? Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world might be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, verse 19 is saying this. I'm going to clarify it real quick. It's saying, if the Jewish people who had the Old Testament and all the prophets, all the promises, if they couldn't live up to God's standard... How much more is everyone else out of luck? If they couldn't keep it with all the promises, all the prophets, all the ways God spoke to them, if they fell short of the glory of God, then everyone's in trouble. Every mouth is going to be stopped before a holy God. We've got no excuses left. We've all been corrupted. And he says, the law simply shows you the knowledge of sin. I've said this before, it's like an MRI machine. The law is not supposed to show you how to live a, a right life to get right with God. Well, in some ways it is, but ultimately because we're totally sinful, none of us can actually do that. And so at the end of the day, what the law does is it just it stands like an MRI machine over our life, showing you that's what the sickness is. Your heart's wrong, and you can't live up to the law of God. The verdict has been given. We're all in the same sinking boat. No one can be justified before a holy God. Now that's the bad news, but there's good news. Where do we go from here? I want to share with you something here. 
I, this morning, had nothing else written that was worth preaching to you from this point on in my sermon. I had about three pages I had written, and the Lord scrapped it. And so I got before the Lord this morning. The Holy Spirit's been doing something kind of neat in me recently where I've been learning how to listen in a new way. This morning, I got on my knees early and just said, God, I'm a little nervous. I got a couple hours here, and uh, I'm pretty sure you got a word to give. What, what, what do you want, what do you need our people to hear right now? And as best as I'm able to hear my Lord speak, I think the word he brought to me was just one word. It was intimacy. And I think he's strung together something that you all need to hear. There's two sides to this doctrine of total depravity. And this is where the rubber hits the road, and we've got to do some real heart work here. Heart work. Number one, the first side of this doctrine is that total depravity is that Christ's blood is more powerful than your guilt. Christ's blood is more powerful than your guilt. On the one side is the reality that, that every one of us stands before a holy God, and what that means is that we have actually done wrong, and most of us don't actually need to be told that. Some of us need to be told that because you think you're really good at life, and this is news to you, that you're not as good as you think you are. Most of us, actually, if you really allow God to do work right now, you know you've corrupted God's plan for your life. And there's guilt that comes with that. And for some of us in this room, if I can just be real honest, you carry a lot of guilt with you about your sin, about your past sin, about your failures, about your looking to who you wish you were and sitting in who you are and knowing and feeling like somehow you're a disappointment. We bring all of that in here. It's one of the effects of total depravity. It's one of the effects of this whole thing we're learning. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. Very religious guy, came to church every week, basically. Did everything everyone told him he was supposed to do. But then the tax collector comes, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to God. He wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. That's the image of someone who knows their guilt. It's someone who just doesn't want to look up because they know they're before a holy God and they've fallen short. And then he beats his breast, it says. That's the image of someone who's emotionally distraught. Oftentimes in scripture you read people tearing their clothes apart. That's not a Superman scene. That's someone who's totally beside themselves over what's taken place. And the tax collector's beside himself over his own sin. And then he cries out and prays to God this way, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to feel the weight of your sin for a moment. It is real, and there are implications of it. And you stand before a holy God who sees everything. But in Christ, there is a justification that comes in terms of your standing before God that changes everything. God moved towards you. He sent Jesus. This is his love for you. Consider this. The weight of your guilt, 
and the corruption you've brought into society, and yet God moves towards you taking your place on the cross. And it's all to do with intimacy. Look at this. When my daughter stands like this before me with purple hands, she's guilty. She crumbles to the ground. That's what she does when she's guilty. She puts this into play. She, she doesn't look up. She knows she's guilty. And she beats her breast. And in her way, what that is is her knees buckle from underneath her. She crumples to the ground and she begins sobbing because she knows she's guilty. But what do I do? She's my daughter. I pick up my daughter. And I hold her with her little purple hands. And I hold her right here as she cries. And I, and I just hold her. I love her. There's consequences for sin. But it doesn't change that she's my daughter and that I love her. That's not going to change. She can do a whole lot of stuff that's very bad. And that doesn't change the fact that she's my daughter. And I'm going to hold her. And I want you to know, church, that intimacy is what you have if your faith is in Jesus Christ. That despite your sin and the guilt you bring into a room like this over what you did this week or what you've done years ago or the failings you've had of where you think you're supposed to be, if your faith is in Jesus and his blood has covered you, it's the only atonement available. No other religion can get you there. You're not going to find strength from the inside. There's nothing else that you can do but trust in Jesus. And if you do that, his blood's bigger than your guilt. And he rewrites your story. Here's what this means. When God looks at you, despite the fact that you're still falling short, even as Christians, He's done a good work. He's in the process of transforming you. Absolutely, you're a Christian. But you're still broken. You're still sin-filled at times. God looks at you and he doesn't look at you in any other way than I look at my daughter with purple hands saying, get over here. I love you. That's the intimacy he wants with you. And if you don't know how to open up to God in honesty about your sin, you're not going to experience it. He doesn't want you to play religion. That guy wasn't justified in the story. He doesn't just want you to come to church and think, I got it. He wants you to cry out with a heart that's actually emotionally wrapped up in the fullness of your sin. Have mercy on me. And then you know what he says? He says, all the mercy was yours at the cross. Fully. You don't need any more mercy. I gave it all to you on the cross. Get in my arms. you got to know Jesus on that level. His blood's more powerful than your guilt. There's another side to total depravity that I need to speak into. And this side, I think, is where we got to do even some more work today. Christ's blood is more powerful than what's happened to you. Let me say that again. Christ's blood is more powerful than what has happened to you. See, if the doctrine of total depravity is true, then it's not just that you are evil. See, what he's done in this passage is he's blurred the line of evil, right? Evil's not out there. Evil's in here. And it's in all of us. And if that's true, then tremendous evil has been done to many of us in this room. And many of us are carrying the wounds around in us, and, and we've never been trained in how to lay wounds of evil done to us at the foot of the cross and allow Jesus to write a new story. And I suspect there's a lot of people getting uncomfortable in the room right now. The pain of a parent disowning their child those wounds run really deep. That's not right, just so you know. God's got a plan for what a family ought to look like. And no parent ought to disown a child. That can cripple a child. It can emotionally scar a child 
that they find themselves in such brokenness at later years in life that people look in and think, man, that person's really screwed up. And if only they knew that their parent disowned them and the wounds that that caused in their life. And, it, and if you allow that wound to fester and you don't learn how to lay that at the foot of the cross, this is the, this is the text. This is total depravity. I'm preaching the text. If you don't learn how to lay a wound like that at Jesus and let him heal you and draw you into intimacy that heals and transforms and writes a new story, you're going to be motivated to do some pretty hurtful things to yourself and others around you in your life. The pain of sexual abuse. In this room, there's a lot of you that have had that done to you. And I can think of no more vile thing in God's eyes than that. And if you don't know how to lay the wound of being abused in that way before a holy God who loves you like a father, if you never deal with that, not with man-made solutions. You're not going to fix that with man-made solutions. Jesus is going to fix it. He's going to rewrite your story. But if you don't learn how to bring it to the foot of the cross and let Jesus begin transforming you, it's going to motivate you. It's going to be your primary motivator. And you're going to do some hard stuff in life. The pain of an alcoholic father. I know that one. That'll motivate you. That'll, that'll get you. You'll do a lot with that one. You, you, can, you, you can do a lot of harm with that one. The pain of emotional abuse. See, th this is real. Emotional abuse is no less a form of abuse than anything else. And if, if you've had someone in your life manipulate you, tear you down, and then convince you that you were the one that was wrong, see some of you are nodding your head. You know that one. I know that one. See, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's total depravity. That's what we do to each other. And when it's been done to you, that becomes a, a motivator. The pain of Growing up in a system, in a society where the cards are stacked against you because of the color of your skin. That'll motivate you. And then the pain of no one in society wanting to talk about it. And just pretending like it's all good. And you should just get your act together, even in the church. Those wounds run real deep. Intimacy. See, here's what the cross offers you. This is, this is really important. Here's what the cross offers you. Jesus looks at a, a system that's gone astray, and he sees the brokenness, and, and he was watching the whole time, right? There's nothing you went through that he didn't see. He saw it all. And he sent his son to go to the cross in your place in order to offer you a union with Christ, whereby he becomes the new motivation, the new blood that flows through your veins, and the new story that's being written. That does not mean that the scars do not last in this life, and that there's not effects of that, 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 that are part of you. Those scars will be done away with in heaven. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Ain't no scars in heaven, praise God, but the ones on Jesus' wrists. Those are the only ones that are up there. Ain't no scars up there. And in this life, there will be impact over what's been done to you. But I want to tell you, church, there is a new story that gets written. His blood is bigger than what's been done to you. His blood is so much more powerful. And when you draw into a relationship, an intimate relationship with God, where the Holy Spirit speaks to the deepest wounds of your life, 
and he begins to set the cards in order, and he undoes the knot that's been done to you, and he says, I'm laying this straight. I've got a bigger story for you. I saw the pain, and I'm actually going to transform you. I've got something beautiful I'm doing with your life. Rest in me. When you learn to rest in the Father's shoulder like a little child and just feel that love, I don't know how to put words to this other than I'm experiencing it myself and I need to tell you, you've got to rest in him and your wounds actually get healing when you draw closer to Jesus. He takes them and he transforms them and the motivations that were driving you to do some pretty dumb stuff because bad stuff was done to you, he writes a new story in your life and he changes your motivation and all of a sudden what you see more than that wound is you see Jesus' wounds on the cross dying on your behalf and you say his glory is worth it. I see you in all your goodness. I know you're good. I know you're writing something new and he transforms you. He meets you in it. And church, there's power in it. It's not religion. It's not just going through the motion. There's this actual power to transform your story. And it's not some equation that I can tell you. I can't explain it other than the word intimacy. He wants you to draw close to him to heal those wounds in your life. It's the doctrine of total depravity. And the greater doctrine of his blood shed on the cross in your behalf. Church, I want to give us some space right here. I suspect that in this room right now, there's, there's some like heart work that's got to get done. Each of us. We're all in the same boat. If you think you're the only one that, that's like, is the preacher preaching to me right now? Everyone's feeling that. You know why? Because I'm preaching to myself. This is all our story. We live in the same world. I want to invite you to bow your heads. We're going to sp spend a moment, and I just want to give you some space to let God just speak, speak a word to you. If your faith is in Jesus, you're a son or a daughter of the king. He loves you. He wants to speak to you. What does he need to heal in your life? What have you not brought before the Lord before? Heavenly Father, we, we've got so much work to do. The path to spiritual maturity is so far, God, it's so long. Oh, but God, I pray for us. God, we lay our brokenness before you. Jesus, we label it. We label the things that have happened to us and the things we're going through right now. Depression. God, you're bigger than depression. I know you are. You heal it. You restore. Anxiety. God, you're bigger than anxiety. I know you are. You restore. You write new stories. Suicidal thoughts, you're bigger than that, God. You transform, you bring beauty out of brokenness. I know you do, it's your character. Words that have been spoken to us that have just cut us down. We 
bring them to you, Jesus. Heal us. Personal failings. Feeling like an outsider to Jesus. Spirit, transform us now, now. Holy Spirit, transform us now. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the blood of the cross. Holy Spirit, bring your convicting wave right now, please. There is healing. Lord Jesus, I pray for those right now that are afraid to say what's been going on in life. I pray for those right now that are coming in this room pretending like they got life together, but they're cracking at the seams. Lord Jesus, you're king, you're the glue, you hold us together. I pray that you'd speak powerfully, that you'd be writing a new story right now. I pray that there'd be proclamation of Jesus right now. Jesus, for all those who are in here with guilt upon guilt, I pray that there'd be experience of grace upon grace. For all those that promised they wouldn't make that same mistake again, and they're frustrated this morning that they made the same mistake again, I pray that they look to the cross and see Jesus hanging, pouring his blood out for them, offering forgiveness, intimacy, Lord, intimacy. Jesus, we desire so much to be an authentic community. God, we want to see your power. We want to see your Holy Spirit bring us to a place where, as Paul said, we, 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 we boast in our brokenness. Because the power of God for salvation working through our brokenness. We don't want to hide it. We don't want to be hypocrites, pretending like we're good. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We want the real God. We want Jesus in the flesh. We want, we want to know the power of the resurrection in our life. And we want the Holy Spirit to just wreck tables, to turn it over to just do a work in us, that it's not us, it's, it's just Jesus, and he's good, and he gave us his word, and it's enough, and we don't get it, but he's good, and he keeps speaking grace upon grace upon grace. Oh, we want that so bad, God. And so we give you our life. We linger in prayer because we give you our life and we know that this doesn't happen quickly. God, do soul work today. Bring us to the foot of the cross today. I pray for new life right now, Jesus. I pray that there will be those in this room right now that are trusting in Jesus for the very first time. Receive all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name.